Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. So last week we began going through Psalm 145 and we said that as you look at Psalm 145, uh, the title of the psalm in your Bible should read David's Psalm of Praise. Now, as you're reading the Psalms and you see these titles to Psalms, they're not uh, to some of these different Psalms. They were not put in there by the translators. They were put in there by the author. So these titles, these Psalms are the inspired word of God. So when David penned down this Psalm, he said that this was his Psalm of praise. And that's, that's unique because it is the only psalm in the entire Bible that is called David's Psalm of Praise. Now the psalms, of course, are Israel's songbook, and they were what, people, what the Israelites would flee to, to, to worship God, to praise God, to, to glorify God, to find comfort and strength. And so anytime David had a kind of a downtime, anytime he was struggling, or anytime he was in a valley, or anytime he was feeling distraught or, or kind of heavy burdened, he would run to this psalm, and he would sing this psalm, and he would, he would lift himself up and praise God. Many theologians believe that this psalm was David's favorite psalm. It was what he would read and flee and run to most often to get comfort and to get strength. And so we, we decided as a church body, and if you don't remember, I listened to the audio, you agreed that we are going to memorize this entire psalm. It's only 21 verses. It's not very long. I know some people who have memorized the entire Bible and they can quote it from Genesis to Revelation without missing a beat. They can quote the whole thing. I don't expect us to do that. And I'll be honest with several of you. My issue is not memorizing different scriptures. My issue is memorizing these, these, this passage, breaking it up, and then trying to put it all back together. So I may not get it back together in the right order, but we've been trying to memorize this scripture together. And I gave you several ways to do it. I told you to write it down in your house and put it where you could see it. If you could download that Bible memory app, Verses. Has anyone downloaded that app and used it? It's a very good verse for memori- uh, to, uh, app for memorizing scripture. It has games that kind of help you memorize scripture. And so I encourage you, download these things, memorize scripture, because it's good for you in just general as a believer to memorize the word of God. You know, the Bible says, where well also a young man cleanses his way by taking heed thereto to thy word. How do you take heed to the word unless you know the word? So we've got to memorize scripture. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So the Bible is full of verses that command us to memorize. And so we've been trying to memorize this. And I asked you last week to memorize the first two verses. How are you doing with them? Who, who can quote them with me? Don't look at your Bible. Don't cheat. No cheaters. Cheaters don't get to heaven, I think the Bible says somewhere. No, it doesn't say that. But don't cheat, so who can quote it with me? Anybody want to try? I'll quote, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. 
Y'all can do that. That's easy. Those are easy verses. That's like John 3.16. Easy. It's, it's, it's like six words just repeated over and over. So we can do that. So this week, try to catch up on verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to try to memorize uh, verses 3 through 5. Now, uh, as we continue, again, Psalm 145 was considered David's favorite psalm. And the psalm is filled with incredible truth about who God is and some wonderful truth about what God does in our life. And so we saw the spiritual reality. God is bigger than our ability to comprehend, yet he has invited us into a satisfying pursuit of eternally discovering the wonder of who he is. There's a lot about God that we will probably never understand, at least on this earth. There are some aspects about God's character, some things that God does. There are some, some things that we're just never going to grasp. And the Bible tells us that. The Bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts. His, thought, his thoughts are high above our thoughts. His ways are high above our ways. It's, we talked about last week, it's like the Trinity. You know, the Trinity is, if we're honest, it's hard to understand. It's hard to explain to people. You know, because I've heard people use different analogies. People use water, where water, if it's frozen as ice, or if it's steam, gas as steam, or if it's as liquid as, as actual water, it's still H2O. So it's the same basic compound. It's the same uh, atomic breakdown, but it's just in three different forms. And they kind of explain it that way. I've heard some people use the egg analogy, which honestly I don't get. But I've heard people use these different analogies to try to teach the Trinity. And the thing about the Trinity is we're probably never going to understand it because he's God. So, you know, I've tried to explain to people, like, well, I just don't understand how God can be three distinct people, but he's still one person. How could he do that? Because he's God. We're not meant to understand it. We're just meant to trust it. How can God say, let there be light, and there's light? How can he do that? Because he's God. Here's another one I've heard people ask. Well, if God created everything, who created God? Well, no one created God. Well, how can God exist without being created? Because he's God. We're not supposed to understand it. We're not supposed to, to try to rationalize it. But the fact that we don't understand it doesn't mean we're not supposed to dive deep into God's word to learn some of the incredible truths about God. And that's what Psalm 145 is. Psalm 145 is David kind of expressing the wonder of who God is and inviting us to to dive deep into the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. And so last week we we looked at verses 1 and 2 and we saw three things about God from these verses. We saw God is God, God is King, and God is knowable. Now, you're going to notice as we go through these scriptures that a lot of the things where you learn about God, you're going to be like, well, duh. Today, the two truths we say, this is what the Bible tells us about God, I believe everyone here is going to be like, well, we knew that. We understood that. That's nothing, you're not bringing any new theology to us. And I don't want to bring you any new theology. But what the, the real thing we're looking at is because of who God is, because God is God, because God is king, because God is noble, what does that mean that we're supposed to do? How are we supposed to act or respond to these truths? We saw last week that because he's God, we're to extol him. 
means to honor him, to praise him. That because he is king, we are to bless him. That word bless means submit. We are to submit our will to God's will. And because God is knowable, we are to praise him. That word praise literally means to shout and sing. So we know who God is, but what are we supposed to do because of who God is. So as we, we continue through the uh, psalm this morning, we're going to ask the same questions. What do these verses tell me about God? And what is my response to that truth? But let's start reading, first of all, in verse number, uh, chapter number 145. We're going to start in verse number 3. <clears throat> Bible says, Great is the Lord. And, and these are the verses you're memorizing this week, so maybe pay attention right now. Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another. And shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty. And of thy wondrous work. So first question. What do these three verses tell us about God? Well the first thing it tells us is God is great. Look again at verse number three. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That's a lot of great in one verse. And look, that's, that makes it easy to memorize, right? Just memorize one word, great. And you got most of it, you got a third of it down. But there is a lot of greatness in this verse. And David is talking about the quality of God's greatness and the quantity of God's greatness. First of all, let's look at the quality. He says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The first great there, which says great is the Lord, is the Hebrew word meod. Meod. It means exceedingly abundant in greatness. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. The first great is the Hebrew word gadol. Gadol. And it simply means great. I know we're diving deep into the Hebrew here, but the Hebrew word for great means Great. But David uses a second word for great, and that's the great word greatly. So greatly is the Hebrew word meod, and it means exceedingly abundant in greatness. What that means, that Hebrew word literally means, is you can get no greater than whatever that thing is. So David is saying God is greatly great. There is nothing or anyone or anything greater than God. He says, you are not, no one is even close to the greatness of God. That's a lot of greatness. And it shows me one thing. When David was thinking about how great God was, he couldn't really think of anything to compare it to. He could have said, oh God, you're as great as the ocean is wide, but God's greater than that. Oh, God, you're as great as the majesty of the stars, but God's greater. When David was thinking about something to compare the greatness of God to, he said, Lord, there's nothing even comparable to your greatness. You are awesomely, incredibly, greatly great. There is nothing even close to your greatness. He was so in all of God's greatness, the best he could come up with was, God, you're greatly great. Your greatness is unsearchable. But not only is he great in quality, David also says he's great in 
quantity. David ends verse 3 by saying, and his greatness is unsearchable. The word unsearchable in the Hebrew means unable to be exhausted. Which means you will never come to the end of God's greatness. You can search and search and search and try to find it, but you will never find the end of God's greatness. You will never find any area that God is not great in. I want you all to answer me a question. You can raise your hand or just shout it out. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan. Who, who, who got somebody else? Don't know that person. Somebody's pulling out Pistol Pete on me, too. Who, who, who got anybody else? Who, who, who says, anybody got somebody else? Dr. J, all right. You got Magic Johnson. Anybody? What about uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? He was pretty great. What about Kobe Bryant? All right, what about, what about uh, LeBron James? If you think LeBron James is the greatest, you're wrong. So we all have different opinions about who, maybe it's Larry Bird, maybe it's Magic Johnson, maybe it's Kobe Bryant. We know it's not LeBron James. But the truth is, it is Michael Jordan. There's no one greater than Michael Jordan. Now, we can argue that back and forth, but Michael Jordan, he averaged 30.1 games, point per game. He had six undefeated NBA Finals appearances. He went six times, he won all six times. His greatness in basketball is exceedingly great, but it ended. He retired. If he were to go back and play again, he'd probably still be good, but he he wouldn't be as great as he was. And his greatness was limited to basketball. Remember he tried baseball for a while? He wasn't very good at that. Remember, he even tried acting for a little bit with Bugs Bunny. Wasn't very good at that. So his basketball greatness is exceedingly great for a while, but it ended. But his greatness in other areas is nowhere near great. See, God's greatness is great in every area, in every aspect in every, it is so great, you will never exhaust God's greatness, and you will never find anything that he is not great in. And here's the thing, most of us here are sitting there thinking, we knew that. We, we knew that God is great. You're not telling us any great fundamental truth of the Bible that we hadn't realized before. You're not pulling out some abstract verse and showing us how the Hebrew meant something different. We know God is great. But the problem is most of us theologically know that God is great, but we don't live as if God is great. We need a vision of how awesomely great God is. And when we truly have a vision and understand the greatness of God it changes everything about us. Remember when Moses got to spend 40 days on Mount Sinai with God and he witnessed firsthand the greatness of God? It changed him. When he came down, he was, his face was shining with the glory of God. But it didn't just change his appearance, it changed his attitude. Remember about Moses? Moses had a temper. 
Before he flees Egypt to go to the wilderness, he kills a man because he got mad at him. Then, you know, he didn't get to the promised land because he lost his temper and smote the rock twice. And God said, because of that, you can't go to the promised land. So Moses had a temper problem. And Moses is coming down the mountain because after spending time with God, Moses says, I think there's, he hears some noise going on. He goes, I think they're fighting. And God says, oh, they're not fighting, but you need to go down there because I'm going to kill every single one of them. And Moses gets down there, and they've got Aaron, of course. They, they, they made the golden calf, and they sit through the earrings, and oh, look, a calf fell out. And so they, they had the golden calf, and they're worshiping this idol. And God is telling Moses, Moses, step aside. I'm wiping them out. But Moses, who has a bit of a temper issue, says, God, I don't, I don't think we ought to do that. I think we ought to have some grace and compassion on there. If, we, if you destroy them, then, you know, what are people going to say about you? It's going to hurt your image and your glory. And God, let's just be merciful to them. And God, as a matter of fact, if you're going to destroy them, just start with me. He threw himself on the mercy of God. Why? Because he'd seen the greatness of God and it changed him. Isaiah saw the greatness of God and it changed him. You cannot see the greatness of God and not be changed. When we understand the greatness of God, it changes how we pursue things over God. It changes how we let our eyes wander in lust for for something that we think is better than what God has given us. It changes how we lose our temper when things don't go our way because we realize a great God is in charge and He's let this happen and He's it's in His providence and His His sovereignty this happened. So since a great awesome God is in charge. I can't lose my temper because it didn't go my way. It changes how we let worry and anxiety control us. Seeing the greatness of God changes us because we see his greatness is unsearchable and we are invited into it. God is great. But the second thing the psalmist tells us is God is active. Look at verse 4. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of all of thy wondrous works. What David is saying here is our incredible, awesome, great God is not an absentee father. He's not an absentee God that just lets things happen And we're on our own down here. And if we're lucky enough, we'll get to spend time with him. He's not on his throne doing nothing, just waiting for us to get to him. God is working and moving and active in our world. And if we open our eyes, we can see it all around us. And we see this truth throughout Scripture. The Bible says in Acts 17, says, For in him, in who? In God. In him we live and move and have our being. That phrase, have our being, means we are kept together. You know what the Bible's saying there? Because of God, you're alive, but because of God, you're stuck together like you are. If God stopped holding you together, you'd fall, you'd float apart. You'd disintegrate down to your basic atoms. But God is holding us together. God is active in our lives. Psalm 8 says this, says, When I consider thy heavens, 
the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? We can see God's activity in the creation of the world, the changing of the seasons and the, the rain and the snow and all the stuff that goes around, even the universe. You look outside and you see the stars in the sky. God didn't just make them. God put them where they are, and God keeps them where they are. God is active in creation. God is working not only in creation, but God is working to protect us. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A very present. I don't got to tell you, presence in the present tense. I mean, God is always helping you. God is always working to protect you and keep you safe. Very present is in the active tense, meaning it is something that God is doing all the time. He is always our help. He is always our refuge. He is always our strength. Deuteronomy 31 says, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God... He it is that doth go down with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. That's the same present active tense. What the Bible means here is God will always go with you. God will never leave you for one second of your life as you accept him as your Savior. He is always with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is present in your, your life and your protection and your sovereignty. God is always working in your life. We see God's activity in our redemption. Before man's fall, God had redemption's plan planned out. Before God said, let there be anything, God knew man would fall, and he wanted to redeem us, so he had our redemption plan worked out. He, he knew that he would send his son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect sinless life. He knew that his son would, would be arrested and put on trial for crimes he did not commit and he would be found guilty. He knew that he would be beaten and humiliated and scourged and hung on a cross and shed his blood and die for our sins. He knew that he would be put in a borrowed tomb, but three days later he would rise again, redeeming us to God the Father. God knew that would happen and we see it in the scripture, but redeeming Redemption didn't stop then. Redemption is continuing now. When God ascended, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he looked at his disciples and said, you're going to get power when you've received the Holy Spirit power. It's your job to go out and share the story of redemption to all of mankind. That the whole world would know God continues to work today through his, his church and through his children to share the story of redemption. That's why it's so important that we spend regular time studying the Bible. Notice I didn't say reading the Bible. Studying the Bible. 
So we can see God's activity through Scripture in our life. We can see the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, and the redemption of God. And see how God works all those things in our lives now because God is an incredible, great God, and God is active in your life Today. But again, I'm not telling you anything new. We all know this. Some of us believe it more than others. Some of us live it more than others. But we all theologically know that God is great. We all theologically know that God is active. That brings us to the second question. How should I respond to this truth? First, declare it. To the next generation. Look at verse 4 again. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. This isn't a new concept David's coming up with. David's not like, hey, you know what? If you know God's great and God's active, maybe I should tell my kids about this. This is a concept that has been in Scripture since the very beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house. And when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and thou shalt be as their frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. And in Deuteronomy 4, it says, Only take heed to thyself to keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from all thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach thy sons and thy sons' sons. Deuteronomy says, you're going to love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, you love God with everything you have. But teach your kids. And he tells us how to teach them. He says, thou shalt teach thy kids by making sure they're in Sunday school every week and in church, children's church every Sunday as well. Make sure they come to Awana and that'll teach. No. He says, you're going to teach the kids because you're going to talk about me in your house. When you're walking down the street, you're going to discuss my greatness with your kids as you're walking around. When you sit down to dinner, discuss the greatness of God. How many of us really honestly do that in our house? We sit down and maybe at dinner, shut the TV off because you should. At dinner, shut the TV off. Put all the phones away. Spend some time with your family. See, that's the issue, I believe. We don't spend time with each other anymore because we've got our devices. And so we're at the table. Uh huh. Sure is good. Uh huh. And we're looking at our tablets. We're looking at our phones. We're watching TV. As soon as dinner's over, we're all doing our own thing. One kid's watching TV down here. One kid's on his phone in there. One kid's, you know, doing something else somewhere else. The parents are in their bedroom on their phones, their TV. And we don't spend time together. I believe that's one of the main issues. So maybe, and I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Maybe let's spend some time together. 
And at dinner, you don't have to preach a sermon to them. You don't got to teach a Sunday school lesson to them. You know what you're supposed to do? Just mention, maybe talk about how good God's been to you that day. Maybe share something God's doing in your life as you're studying the scriptures. But you'll have to study the scriptures for that. Maybe work on memorizing Psalm 145 together. Say, hey, let's, let's quote this together, kids. Let's go through this. Let's, let's talk about how great God is. See, God's plan for your children to learn about him is not Sunday school. It's not children's church. It's not Awana. It's your house. God's plan for your children to learn about God and learn how to walk with God and learn how to love God and learn how to listen to God is their parents teaching them. But that means the parents have to do it as well. That's the issue with the, in the book of Judges. You read the book of Judges. Moses, of course, is gone. The generation that crossed the Red Sea is gone. They didn't get to go to the Promised Land. But Joshua, he led them through the Jordan River. And the second generation, they get to see all the victory of, of Jericho. They get to see the conquering of, the, of the, 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 the land. And they get to see all the miracles of God. But then they die off. Eventually, Joshua dies off. And the generation that's in charge... They learned about the miracles of God, but they didn't really experience the miracles of God, and they don't teach it to the generation following them. So the whole nation falls into idolatry because one generation failed to teach the greatness and the activity of God to the generation behind them. Our kids, our grandkids, they struggle in their walk with God, in their relationship with God, struggle in being faithful to church because we, as a generation before, fail to pass on the truths of God, the truth that he is great, the truth that he is active, that he is moving in our lives and our world. We are to declare his works, his love, his grace, his mercy, to the next generation. And we do that by telling them and talking to them about the blessings of God, about answered prayer. Hey, maybe if God answers one of your prayers, why don't at dinner with your kids when the phones are off and the stuff's off, why don't you say, hey kids, let me tell you how God answered my prayer. Let me tell you what God did in my life today. And maybe you might get your kids telling you how God worked in their life. Say, oh, that's great, Dad. Look what God did for me. Let's teach the wonderful truths of God to the next generation, sharing what God is doing in our lives and in our hearts as we seek him because God is great and God is active and we need to declare it to the next generation. But I realize I'm saying this and there's a lot of you here that don't have kids. A lot of you here don't have grandkids. So you're like, I'm off the hook. No. It's your responsibility. Why do I do that, preacher? Well, we, we do have some ways for you to help with that. We do have Sunday school that needs some teachers where you could declare the truths of God to those kids. Well, you just said it's not Sunday school's job. It's not Sunday school's job only. But we have a part in it. We got children's church needs help. We got nursery. We got all kinds of ways you can get involved and share the glory of God to the next generation. But maybe don't share it to the next generation. Maybe share it to your generation, your friends at work, your coworkers, your neighbors, your relatives. We are all responsible for sharing the glory of God and his greatness and his, his, his goodness and his activity. 
You know, some of the older couples, you can take out younger couples and befriend them and take them to lunch, take them to dinner. Some of these young couples are poor. They'll gladly go out to dinner with you. You offer them food, they're like, yes, because we weren't going to eat today. So they're gonna, they'll go out, and then you can share the goodness of God in your life and how your families thrive through, through God's goodness. Here's the point. When you realize God's greatness, when you see God's activity, we can't help but tell other people. We saw it in the New Testament all the time. Jesus would heal a person. They would praise Jesus. He'd say, okay, you're welcome, but don't tell anybody. Oh, pfft. you got it, Jesus. Keep it to myself. You know what the first thing they did when they left Jesus? Told everybody. They couldn't keep their mouths shut. Jesus, don't tell anybody. Oh, I won't tell them. Hey, guess what Jesus did? Because when you experience the greatness and the activity of God, you just got to share it. You just got to share it with everyone you can. They declared the truth of God's greatness and God's activity to the generations. And that is something that we can all do. So we can declare it. To the next generation. Here's the second thing David says to do. We can meditate on these truths. Look at verse 5. I will speak of thy glorious honor, of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. Now, say, where do you get meditation in there? All right, well, I'll show you. The word speak there in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word siak. It means to muse, to meditate on, to ponder, to study. So David's really, he's not saying, I'll speak. He's, I will meditate and ponder and think about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. David is saying that he will ponder and meditate on the truths of God's greatness and God's activity in his life. So what does it mean to meditate on these truths? You get out your little yoga mat and you sit Indian style on the floor. I would do it, but I will not get up. And you kind of hold your own and go, for four or five hours, that's, what, that's meditation, right? No, that's what we consider meditation. But here's biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is to think deeply about what God has said to us in his word and to prepare our minds and our hearts for prayer. So here's what that means. You study the Bible, you read the Bible, you look at the Bible, you let the Word of God speak to you, that fuels your meditation, where you see a truth in the Bible and you start thinking about that and pondering on it. And that, that reading of the Bible fuels your meditation, which fuels your prayer. Because you meditate on these truths, and when you go to God in prayer, you are, get, you are speaking to God about these truths that you learn. Meditation originated with God, not with yoga. And we have the works of God in Scripture that we can read and meditate on His activity and that can lead us to prayer. And here's the thing. We all meditate all the time just about other stuff. We call it daydreaming. Let our mind wander. Think about when your spouse, when you were dating your spouse. I remember me and April were dating. I graduated high school. We were engaged. And so I graduated high school and she was... Uh, She's still in high school? Yeah, so we weren't engaged. We got engaged after high school. So I graduated. I was working. I was going to school uh, at night, and I was working during the day for an HVAC construction company. And uh, I remember one day, uh, I knew I was going to propose to her after graduation. 
and graduation was coming up. And so I just kept, I was just thinking about her and how much I loved her and all this stuff. And one day I was driving to Charlottesville. I was taking a load of sheet metal up to Charlottesville for one of our jobs. And on the way to Charlottesville, every chance I got, I would stop, and you can't do this anymore, but I would stop and pick some wildflowers. And so I picked a bunch on the way home, on the way up. I picked a bunch on the way back. Well, by the time I got home, I had a, my, my lunchbox was full of wildflowers. I wrapped them up, took them. When I went to see her that night, I took her this bouquet of wildflowers. Now, they had some bugs in them, but, man, she thought it was the sweetest thing in the world. I've never done that again. I buy her flowers now because uh, I don't like the bugs. But why did I do that? Because I was meditating on her all day. I'd be driving down the road and just thinking, man, she's pretty. She sure is sweet. I, need to, I, should, I should get her that flower. And just constantly and meditating on her led me to pick flowers for her, to give to her. You can meditate on God too. As you're driving down the road, just turn off the radio and think, man, God sure has been good to me. I'm healthy. I'm alive at least. I've got strength. I've, I, I, I have a good home. I have a good family. All of us can think of things about how good God has been to us. And when you start meditating on God's greatness and God's activity, when you go to pray, your prayers aren't so self-centered. Your prayers aren't so, God, heal this person. Your prayers are, God, you are, you are incredible. God, you are great. Lord, thank you for your love in my life. Thank you for, Lord, working in my life and moving in my life. God, just thank you for your greatness. We meditate and ponder the truths of God. And as we meditate, it leads us to pray to God. And there is plenty to meditate on about God. Meditate on his greatness. Meditate on his love for you. Meditate on salvation. Just meditate about how what God had to endure to purchase your redemption. And as we meditate on that and think about how God's grace and God's love and God's mercy we lead to pray up to God about these things. So these three verses teach us two incredible truths about God that we each know, but too often we forget. God is great. There is nothing and no one greater than God. And when we see that and realize that, it changes us. It changes how we talk. Changes how we treat people. Changes how we do everything. And part of his greatness is his activity in our lives. I can tell you for certain that God is working in your life today. His grace, his mercy, his love, his protection, his provision is active and seen in your life. And his activity is seen throughout the world. And these incredible truths about God should cause each of us to say, because God is great, because God is active, I'm going to share that truth with the next generation. I'm going to share that truth with anyone I can. And I'm going to meditate on them daily to help me as I pray to God. Let's remember God's greatness, remember God's activity, and allow that to move us to do something. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,